Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. I'm here with my good buddy, Patrick Ceresna. How's it going, George? Uh, it's, 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 it's going well, but there's a lot to talk about right now. Did you see Absolutely. I just did a video on the 10-year Treasury yield is down like 15 basis points just today. Yeah. Just it's today. Insane. So it, let me start off by asking you, when it comes to long-term interest rates, are you in the camp where you believe that they are a result of future inflation and growth expectations? Kind of, I think that's that Irving Fisher view. Or are you yeah. someone that more so believes that the Fed has complete control over interest rates? What What do you think drives that 10-year? Okay, so the 10-year bond uh, is uh, much more price discovery than the two-year, right? The two-year is directly reflecting the forecast of Fed funds rates, right? Because it's so, so short in duration. The path of the Fed is the predominant driver. Uh, of course, when you're going longer duration bonds, markets expectation of inflation, future inflation, not just where the inflation rate is. And that's where a lot of people mix it up. Right. Because it's um, everyone's like, oh, shit, inflation's at 7%. But yeah, okay, inflation might be at 9%, 7%, 5%. But where do they think the average inflation for the next decade is going to be? Mm, right. And if that average inflation is much lower, then, then that Fisher equation is calculating it. But it's been one with uh, negative real rates and all sorts of stuff. Uh, it's really hard to gauge, uh, uh, you know, I obviously central banks play a role. Uh, they, uh, when they do quantitative easing and or tightening uh, by uh, increasing or decreasing their balance sheet, they get to choose what maturities they want. Therefore, they can influence yields at different parts of the curve. Uh, and, uh, and therefore, they are a player on the field and a big player on the field. But it's still price discovery in the end because there's a shitload of treasury out there. And whether people want to own uh, duration is, uh, is, a, is a decision beyond the flows of the Fed. Yeah. I think if you take it to an extreme, like if you said, hey, Janet Yellen is going to issue $20 trillion in treasuries tomorrow, would that amount of supply overwhelm demand? Absolutely. Or would that be the, the, the major contributing factor to the price? I would say yes. Of course. But if we're talking about the deficits just going higher and higher and higher, like we all know that they're going to in 2024 yeah. and, and, and beyond, and the, the interest rate, uh, the interest payments on the debt increasing and all these things that we know are going to happen, I don't know how much that impacts it because if you have these incremental moves that are continuing to going higher and higher and higher, even if they start to go almost exponential, because the higher the interest rate, then the risk reward stays the same, or excuse me, the risk stays the same as far as future growth and inflation expectations. Yeah. And then the reward becomes higher because the, in, the yield is going up, which creates more demand. And I think that proof positive is what's happened in the 10 year for the last what month? I mean, we're at yeah. 5% like a month ago, roughly. And now today we dip down, I think even under 4.15%. And that's in light of all of this supply, not only coming online, but future expectations for supply. Do you think that there's anyone out there buying the long end of the curve, these sophisticated buyers that don't know the United States is going to run massive deficits in the next 10 years? I mean, do you think that they're, they're like, what? Are you kidding me? The, you know, we're not going to run a, a surplus? No, that's not coming as news to anybody. But demand, even in light of all that supply and expectation, we still have demand that exceeds it.
and therefore that's why I think that what that demand is telling you, in other words, rates going down, is that the future growth and inflation expectations are crashing. Listen, I, I you're not wrong about anything you said. The one th- factor that has to be accounted for is is that it's not like a trader making a decision. You know whether I own Apple or sell Apple, or I buy this stock or sell this stock. Um, because the U.S. dollar remains the world reserve currency, and while br- the BRICs are trying to displace it and create alternatives, and all these different things are happening, ultimately, still the vast majority of world trade uh, transacts in U.S. dollar settlement, and therefore, U.S. dollar reserves uh, on central banks around the world are there. They're not. Uh, they need to do something with the money. Parking it into treasuries, often shorter term at these yields, uh, is still a major factor. And just because they know that the U.S. government is fucked, uh, it doesn't mean that they're going to go and suddenly say, no, I'm going to own, you know, uh, some, uh, you know, English bonds or uh, some, uh, you know, Swiss bonds or something. And then they're going to go take currency risks and convert shit to do other stuff. They have really no choice but to be a buyer. If they've got a surplus and they've got that cash, they're, they're a bag holder, whether they like it or not. Uh, And uh, so I don't, it's a factor, but I, I think that there's still people that need to own this stuff, even though they know the, the fundamentals. Let me, uh, uh, this is a question that kind of dovetails on what we're talking about. and something that I've been grappling with lately. So I'd love to get your opinion. And if you don't have an opinion on this, yeah. we'll just skip to the next question. What do you think the major difference is between Argentina and Japan? Because if you look at, let's just look at their balance sheet, the central, I mean, they've been doing the exact same thing. Right now, you could say, well, Argentina has been doing it to a greater degree. Okay, fine. But, 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 but why, just because one is doing it to a greater degree doesn't mean that we should have the exact opposite. We should have the same thing play out, but to a lesser degree, if, that's, if those are the mechanics that were really driving the, the move in inflation, let's say in Argentina, or deflation in Japan. Because you look at the, I just did a study yesterday, the BOJ, I would say that their balance sheet over the last 10 years has accounted for pretty much 100% of their M2 money supply growth. Because you look at bank lending, it's basically flat. So if bank lending's flat, then the only game in town is the central bank buying treasuries from the non-bank entities, which would increase their M2, right? So it's basically... Uh, central bank balance sheet. If you look at Argentina, that's how this thing always starts, that you have currency units that are being created, not by them lending, being lent into existence. Because I think that if those currency units are lent into existence, if there's no more demand, then there's no more supply. Because then the debt is paid off. And once the debt is paid off, that decreases the amount of currency units that are outstanding. But if you're quite literally printing pieces of paper, or if you're doing something similar via the central bank's balance sheet, now all of a sudden, those aren't being lent into existence. So if there's no more demand for those currency units, then you get the Weimar Germany picture where people are like shoveling the pieces of paper into a wheelbarrow. But if all those currency units are lent, then it's a completely different dynamic. So my point there is that you have that expansion with those currency units that are not lent into existence in Japan, just like you did Argentina, 
but you have completely different, not just different, but the opposite result when it comes to consumer price inflation. Have you ever given that any thought or do you have some insights? Oh, I, I haven't put thought into it, but I think uh, the... Uh, while you're focused on the currency element of it and and the debt levels and how they manage it is, is spot on, uh, they're very different uh, economies. Japan is still, you know, I think the fourth largest uh, economy in the world, huge uh, export business, very high technology and development and very developed commercial banking system that uh, plays a very big financial role in the world. So their currency is very actively transacted and held uh, and or traded. And so it has a, a certain amount of uh, privilege uh, that Argentina has fucked up, all right? Yeah. Like, uh, and and so th there isn't, uh, uh, you know, that that's, I think uh, has to play a role in w why that difference is there. But I get what you're saying. It, it, uh, and that's a great question. I never thought about it though. Yeah, well, I'll keep you posted because I'm going to be thinking, <laughs> seriously, it drives me crazy. Ever since yeah. I got into macro, it's always just been kind of a thorn on my in my side mentally yeah. that why Japan can do what they have done and not have a massive inflation. What, how is that possible? And if maybe, I think we're trying to predict Japan, what's going to happen in the U.S., we, we've got to understand that, right? We, we've got to understand is, Maybe Japan is just more systemically important, and uh, uh, and there's a powers that be that uh, you know recognize the uh, the kind of nature of that. If there was a tsunami there in terms of financial thing, uh, the knock on effects could uh, uh, you know somehow destabilize the entire system. Like maybe I, mean, I don't know. I'm just speculating out loud. I have no way of validating but that. But you see why this is important, Patrick, is because let's just assume that you do the research and come to that conclusion, and yeah. that's your base case. Well, that would dramatically change the trajectory of where you think the United States is going to go in the next five years. Then you would definitely be in like the Lacey Hunt camp. Yeah. Right? But, yeah. If, but if you come to the conclusion that the United States is more like Argentina for XYZ reason, then you fall in the, the Luke Groman camp. Yeah, or maybe Lynn Alden, something like that. So it, it, and those are on completely opposite ends of the spectrum there. And that's a very important question when you're trying to figure out how to allocate assets as an American, uh, you know, or if you're assuming that you're interested in the U.S. bond market, the U.S. stock market, U.S. assets. But yeah. uh, anyway, well, let's move on here. Well, let's let's just talk in bonds. We should. Yeah, stay yeah, here yeah. I'd love to get your opinion there. Yeah, listen. Uh, so there's a. a a lot of people um, are trading uh, longer duration bonds uh, because historically uh, they have given you the greatest kind of payoff on a percentage basis for uh, changes in interest rates, right? The longer right. the duration, the more of a percentage move in either direction. It's like, it's like bonds on steroids, right? When you right. go go long duration. And so a lot of people are looking at the current situation of some degree of an economic slowdown, recession, whatever is imminently uh, uh, ahead of us. 
that it's going to have disinflationary pressures, which uh, ultimately allow long-term interest rates to come down and subsequently very half decent returns to be there. That's why, for instance, uh, when we are on Macro Voices, uh, David Rosenberg had you know his barbell thesis of gold yeah. and long bonds is uh, is because he's looking for you know uh, that twenty five percent upside on a long bond trade. But for me, that is uh, still have a certain amount of uncertainty of whether it plays out that way. And what I'm fascinated with was, uh, is with uh, Stanley Druckenmiller's trade, which they basically loaded up very heavy on the two-year note. Now, on the two-year note, you, take, uh, you have to take far more leverage because like you, during the greatest bond bear market in history, the last two years, where you know, the long bond almost lost 50% of its value, uh, the two-year note was barely down 10%. Right. Like it's simply not a fast mover uh, and you're not going to get your bang for the buck unless you're carrying proper leverage. Uh, but what I feel is the greatest certainty is, is that what the, the that the U.S. economy and more importantly, the entire global economy, European, Canada, Australia, nobody can handle interest rates up here over the long term. They raised interest rates up here to fight inflation, but there's no way the economy can handle this kind of cost of credit. And therefore, one of the, uh, think, one of the things that I think is an absolute certainty is that the Fed is going to cut again. And it's just a matter of if and when. And right now, this, what's baffling me beyond all belief is the fact that uh, ever since Ackman and all these other guys came out talking about that they think there's going to be a first quarter cut, um, suddenly CME Fed funds futures are pricing in uh, a better a chance that the Fed cuts in March than it stays the same. March, like we haven't even seen uptick in jobs. We haven't seen anything legitimately break. And they're already starting to price in a Fed cut cycle. Now, whether that happens, I think the market's wrong. I think that the Fed actually stays higher for longer until they break something. So I think that the market will readjust this little uh, hiccup. But what I do believe we're going to see is that inevitably the Fed will be cutting. And they will cut to ease interest rates, and it will be most impactful on the two-year. And one of the uh, most amazing products that I saw out there was made by uh, a great guest of ours uh, on Macro Voice and Market Huddle, uh, Harley Bassman. Um, and I, I think you may have uh, may have run across some of his interviews. I don't know if you ever had him on your show. I but, haven't, uh, but I'm but I'm buddies with Mike. Mike Green. Yeah, with Mike Green. Mike, Mike partnered with Absolutely. him. Absolutely. Yeah, and Mike Green and him are fantastic. And so Harley and Mike Green, uh, I think Mike might have had a say in it, but uh, obviously Har it's, Harley was the spearhead of it. They created this ETF called the TUA. It's a symbol TUA. And it's the short-term uh, leverage two-year uh, treasury bond ETF. Hmm. And the goal is to leverage two-year treasury bonds to the point that they will outperform the 10-year. Oh, that's interesting. So, I didn't so, know that. Yeah. And so you have a scenario where um, yeah, where uh, if we had that uh, – and so right now at that current calculation, they are 500% leveraged in that ETF on two-year treasury bonds, which will give – the, that uh, uh, fund the performance of a 10-year bond. 
And yet, the reason I love it is that there is far more certainty that the Fed will cut than a disinflationary impulse that causes the long bonds to rip. And so I think there's... Patrick, can I jump in there real quick? Let let me make sure the audience kind of follows what you're saying there. So, So usually the percentage move as far as price in the 10 year is going to be far more than the two year or they'll take to extreme the one month. Uh, so if the one month goes down by 1%, the price move is going to be a fraction of what the price move would be if the 10 year treasury went down right. by 1%. Uh, exactly. Same thing. Then the 30 year would go, would the price move would be even more significant than the 10 year. So what Patrick is talking about with Mike and, and Harley's product, this ETF, is that the way they've engineered it, the two-year treasury has the exact same or maybe even a, a more significant price move with the exact same interest rate move as the 10-year or the 30-year. So am, well, It's am not I, leverage a 30-year, but it's definitely the, 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 trying to beat the 10. Like okay, the 30 so, year, so, no. so if the two-year goes down by 1% and the 10-year goes down by 1% and you buy this product that, that Mike and Harley have, uh, you will have a similar type of return. Net return. Yeah, but but, but yet, I think but what your argument two- is also too is that not only is there a higher probability that the two-year treasury goes down than maybe the ten-year, well, but if it does, down. it'll most likely go down a higher percentage because if the yes. Fed drops to zero, then the two years likely going to like fifty. You're gonna get a five percent move, and the and right the, where and the, the ten-year might only go down one percent or two percent. Yeah, it's, okay. I think I think it's a way better trade. Okay, uh, and it's um, like I personally am more than happy to go into the futures market and create my own leverage, no different than like a Stanley Druckenmiller will do. But for a retail investor who doesn't have access to futures and not comfortable with that, this ETF does it for you. And there's a, like Harley is so super smart and they build nothing but great products. Like it, uh, if you're looking for uh, that bond exposure and, and that kind of thing, it's uh, hundred percent check it out TUA. I have no commission on getting plugging it. It's just an amazing product. I think uh, your listeners should uh, check it out. Yeah, it's very cool. I didn't even know about it. And I know a lot of the listeners are interested in the TLT. We talk about that quite uh, frequently. I would so, I would own the TUA any day over the TLT, even though I'm not opposed to the TLT going higher. I'm not bearish it, but I uh, I would load up on the TUA much more. Then I huh. would uh, own the TLT. All right, but, uh, well, you, you can own both. Like I'm not saying anything, but it should be in the mix. Yeah, yeah, Josh, make a note of that. We gotta, we gotta talk to Steve about that one. <laughs> Steve is our. We're, we're using a, a, a pseudonym. I think that's the right way to say a fake name for a, a hedge fund manager. It's a good buddy's a good buddy of ours in uh, St. Bart's. He's real okay. good buddies with Hugh, and he's like one of the smartest, most successful hedge fund managers I've, I've ever met in my life. But he likes to stay under the radar, so we just call him Steve. Uh, but he's very, very long TLT right now, and we talk about that on this channel. Hey, guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Jason Hartman, real estate, and Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. 
If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. That's a very bearish view, Patrick, which I think that's kind of your base case. So let's talk about stocks. I I get this all the time on the comments and even in Rebel Capitalist Pro, people saying, well, George, if we think there's going to be a hard landing in 2024, you know, when should I short the NASDAQ? When should I short the S&P? And my response to that is, look, first and foremost, you know, I'm not giving you any investment advice. I'm not doing anything other than just holding T-bills, T-bill chill and gold for me. But if you want to make that play, I would consider the TLT going long TLT instead of short the market, because if the Fed steps in or whatever, the central planners, and they could prop up the market while at the same time interest rates go down, even with that hard landing scenario. How how do you see that? And if someone did want to maybe short the market, if they're just hell bent on it, do you have a maybe a a better way to do that than just uh, shorting the S&P? Yeah. So, George, let's recall, like I've been on your show uh, twice earlier this year, once uh, uh, very close to when the uh, regional bank crisis was going on. And then we also uh, I I came back on in the summer uh, as well. And one of the observations that we made together when we were on there uh, was the obser- observation that a lot of people misinterpret the impact of Fed and monetary policy as to when recessions uh, actually occur. And uh, what, uh, um, as an example, uh, Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke raised interest rates from mid-2004 to mid-2006, till the summer of 2006, in a rate hike cycle that almost was as uh, steep as this one, but not as much. They raised like four and a quarter percent or something like this in two years. Um, Then they paused and remained with interest rates unchanged for an entire year. Anybody that's observing that the Fed raising interest rates will create tight monetary conditions, stresses on the debt markets, do all of this, cause a crisis in the mortgage markets. If they started shorting in early 2006, a year and a half into the rate hike cycle, uh, they were two years too early to the crisis. Mm. Like uh, the the thing is, is that a lot of times we get excited as traders about making an observation economically as to what will inevitably be the impact. There is no doubt, no doubt that uh, the impact of these high interest rates are going to screw over the economy. Like uh, as an example, uh, I was looking at a, a chart uh, on uh, on Twitter, uh, and it's on, you could uh, get it also just by going to Fred at um, uh, the the database for the Federal Reserve. St. Louis Fed, yeah. St. Louis Fed. And you could just look at the year-over-year change of uh, bank credit of all commercial banks. Yeah, yeah. I do loans and leases. Similar. And this is the only time, other than the great financial crisis, where we're seeing a contraction of bank credit. 
Yeah. We have we now have credit card delinquencies in the United States greater than it was during the great financial crisis. The point is it's not that this is imminent doom today, but there should be no question that high interest rates and tight credit conditions are stressing consumers and the entire economy and inevitably things break. Now, uh, usually uh, the Fed uh, keeps rates unchanged, often from anywhere from six months to a year. We would be just passing the six-month mark when everybody seems to be so sure that uh, that Powell is going to cut in March, right? Because it was just at the end of the summer when the last rate hike we had. And, um, and so uh, going out to March would be roughly six months. I think... Still think that the first rate cut might be further in there, but I, unbelievably, the Fed funds is already forecasting um, even like a 30% chance of three rate hikes by the summer. I just I'm blown away that the market is this aggressive, but it is what it is, and they'll then the market can pull it out once they realize there's a feedback loop. George, let me just make my point now. I'll let you comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a feedback loop, which is by everyone forecasting that the Fed will start cutting. It creates um, easing because all interest rates drop. And by interest rates dropping and as being a synthetic easing, it actually reduces the need for the Fed to actually cut. It's like um, it's like the plunge protection team just saying we're going to buy. They don't need to, they don't have to buy just by them saying they're going to buy actually has everyone buy and they actually cause the turn in the market. And so the pro- the thing is, is that by everyone pricing in this rate cut, I actually think it keeps Powell um, uh, higher for longer than ever than the market is at least currently pricing. But uh, but anyway, that's that's my position. You wanted to say something? I, yeah, a couple things there. A, I understand your point, but one of the thought experiments that I always use is going because to your earlier point, to said another way, the curve inverted in two thousand six, and we didn't have Lehman until the middle of two thousand eight. Uh, so I always try to ask myself, okay, moving into two thousand eight, let's say we're at the beginning of two thousand eight, and the Fed actually saw the problem coming. And let's just say they would have started to cut rates earlier. Let's say they would have started to cut rates in a year earlier than they did. They started cutting in July of 2007 and the crisis happened in 2008. Yeah. Well, let's say, say they would have started cutting in 2006, something yeah. like that. Do, would we have had the GFC? I mean, my answer is yes, absolutely. <laughs> you weren't getting around that regardless of what the Fed was doing. So It might have sure. been different, but it would have still played out for sure. Yeah, so so I always wonder how much of an impact the the Fed actually has. I guess it would be the severity of the crisis itself. Yeah. That was no. I just wanted to say that. Number two, uh, just for Josh, when you're saying the market is predicting that there's a thirty percent chance that the Fed cuts in March, uh, where are you getting that data? And then the reason I'd like Josh to write this down is because I'd like to go back to uh, two thousand seven. And, and look at what the same uh, metrics or the yeah. same market was predicting that the Fed would do back then for a little comparison. I think that would be fun. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you're going to need a, a, a Bloomberg machine to go uh, to the uh, that far back. Oh, really? uh, but I but I'm just going there. If you just Google the CME the, uh, um, group, which is the, okay. um, the exchange, so that's where you're getting it. And, and you basically just have to do, look at the Fed watch tool. And okay. what happens is that it, uh, like for instance, right now in June, they're um, assigning so a seventeen percent chance that they are unchanged. 
uh, and uh, 41% chance of a uh, one rate hike uh, and a 34% chance of two rate hikes and a 5% chance of three. So, sorry, I was off. Uh, I, I was misrepresenting, but that's where they currently are out in June, including okay. in March. There's a 55% chance we're going to see the first cut is what well, they're um, what they're looking at. Josh, we'll, we'll look at that for a separate video just to compare like 2007 with where we are today with that CME group. But uh, Patrick, can you talk about how the volatility right now is in extremely low? I, I don't know if it's at all time lows. We're getting close to that because that really uh, dictates the price of the options. And we all know you're an expert in that field. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll get to the options in one second. I just want to make one last point about the market. Okay. Uh, and so we're at a stage, in my opinion, where the stock market is in a bull phase, right? Like, uh, and we think it's stupid. Uh, we don't think the market should be up here, but it is, and it's still in a trend. So we have to accept that as the reality of, of the current situation. Uh, there is no shortage of people uh, that are already sure that the mag seven are turning, uh, that this is that inflection point where everything is going to turn. And um, I believe that this level in the stock market is a very good level to be short at. But I also don't think there's anything stopping the market from surprising everyone uh, by retesting the 4,800 high into January, which could still leave another 5% rise in this market and that the turn point is deeper into the first quarter than it is now. And so, so I think that this is a, a very tactically good level to apply particularly option strategies because options have a definable risk. You don't want to carry a Delta One naked short uh, on the market and then be eating a, a 300 S&P point rise or something like this. Uh, but the interesting uh, thing that the listeners should know uh, is that the average S&P 500 returns only start to actually crater. There's, there's, uh, there's three conditions. First, curve steepens. You're all over that. You've already talked about this with your members. No one on the show needs to hear more about that. Bull steepener, bull steepener too, uh, yeah. not the bear steepener, bull steepener. And it, the bull steepening, absolutely. It's got to be the Fed cutting, which is going to make that TUA bond skyrocket, right? Or the yep. ETF. The um, But then credit tightens, which we're seeing. Bank credit negative for the first time and thing. And then comes the first rate cut. The key here is, is that almost all market declines at least the vast majority in the last 150 years, the worst parts of decline are actually during the period when the Fed is cutting. Because right. usually something is broken, the Fed has to fix, and they're cutting to provide liquidity and ease the conditions because shit's hit the fan. Right. And, uh, and so we are almost certainly going to have a very – volatile 2024. And whether this market starts here, ends December and starts January with a pop uh, and maybe goes test 4,800, I think it's, um, uh, this is where you use uh, some basic technical analysis. Throw just a freaking 50-day moving average. And if it's above the 50-day moving average, it's on an uptrend and I'm going to be easy on my shorts, right? Like you got to just have some metric to kind of make sure that you know that the trend has shifted. But when this turns, I think that that's when we're going to see 
um, uh, th that kind of ugly side of the market emerge. And I think it's going to be a nasty one um, uh, that, that's going to play out. So the interesting part, though, George, is, is that uh, it has never been cheaper to hedge your portfolio. No, it, it's more than the low vol. It's the high interest rates. And so uh, so um, uh, what? Uh, there's two factors. First of all, you want to study uh, uh, not 30-day VIX. The biggest mistake a lot of traders that are looking at positioning in the market, they believe that the VIX is – well, the VIX is what everyone watches. So it's the, it's the publicized thing, and everyone should still keep an eye on the VIX. But it's only forecasting – what volatility the market is anticipating over the next 30 days. What's 30 days forward right now? Christmas. Like if the, Christmas is going to be low volume, low vol. Uh, let, I mean, there was a Christmas massacre uh, many years back, but uh, more often than not, um, the, uh, the markets tend to do nothing during that period. So mm. one month volatility pricing in down at 12 or 13 uh, is not totally unrealistic. It's entirely plausible that the market actually will have a very dull December and that the VIX, in fact, is accurately reflecting what is a, the right premium for that. But what is actually far more important is one-year volatility premium, which is measuring the volatility premium to buy options one year in duration. Okay. Because this is going to encompass um uh the the period from which the most challenging you know market obstacles will present themselves in the coming year you don't have to be fucking right about whether it's uh next month or the month after you just know that going into the elections there's going to be a shit show in the markets and and you need something that encompasses that time frame and one year uh, year volatility is trading at multi-year lows. In mm. other words, wow. it's literally they're giving you insurance at multi-year lows. But there's a second factor when buying puts as insurance that is a factor that plays in, and I, I explain it in this webinar I'm doing. But the second factor is, is that um, interest rates have to be discounted in an option pricing model. Options are priced by strike price, stock price, um, uh, time, volatility, dividends, and interest rates. These are the like an algebra equation. You jam them all in, spit it out, gives you the option price based on that. And they, of course, put skews on volatility and do all sorts of things. But there's a, it's, a, it's a basic math thing to determine what an option is worth. That sixth variable I said, the interest rates, is an important factor because mm. these options – have to discount one year of interest rates. Now, for the last half a decade, when interest rates were at zero, interest rates were a nothing burger. It had almost no influence on uh, on option pricing because uh, they were zero and it allowed put call parity to be pretty close to where, where everything was equal. But now, when discounting 5% interest rates, uh, where short-term money is, uh, and you're discounting that five-year interest rate, it makes the call almost double the price of the put. In other mm. words, the put option is literally got a discount because, uh, and this is because of an arbitrage. I, you know, it's not, I don't want to get into the confusing language that might uh, confuse people that are on the live stream and stuff. But generally, what you want to think is, is that 
uh, very smart investors and hedge funds would be able to construct options trades to harvest free money from the market if this arbitrage wasn't closed through repricing these options this way. And, uh, and so therefore these puts are cheaper. But then the part that baffles me is that because these puts are cheaper because of interest rates, does that make the downside risk of the market any less? Right. <laughs> no answer. It doesn't. <laughs> so it's never been cheaper to either be short the mar downside market and or, um, uh, or or hedging just your existing portfolio. You know, like uh, to me, like, look, you you uh, share your portfolio composition. You got treasury bonds. You got your gold. You got cash. Uh, you know, you're 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 sitting there. You've told everyone, but not every one of your listeners has that ability. A lot of them have four hundred one ks or these locked in vehicles and all this different stuff, and they're invested in these mutual funds and they can't liquidate shit. Or if they sell these stocks, they you know that have been holding for a decade, they're up hundreds of percent and create huge tax dispositions. There's all sorts of people that simply don't have the privilege of saying. I want to be just like George and I'm just going to be in cash. Like mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people actually have challenges that way. And there is no more interesting vehicle with these, uh, with these uh, puts to construct ways to protect those things you can't liquidate to cash in right. these kind of periods. And this is where just taking the time to learn about this stuff is so valuable. Um, you know, and, and it's, it, and it's such an amazing thing because, okay, Let's just say the market right now is pricing it that Fed's going to start cutting in March. I am again, I was skeptical. I'm not so sure I believe it. But what the market is clearly pricing is at some point the Fed is about to start cutting. The thing is, is that uh, very similar to a bond rising in price when interest rates go down, uh, a long dated option has the same convexity or uh, of a bond. In other words, as that interest rates decline, that put option actually will increase in value from interest rates declining. And mm. so as you are time decaying from carrying this option, there's a carry cost to owning it. Uh, that time decay is your enemy. You know, you being early to the yep. trade, you're paying a carry cost for owning it. But the interest rates, if they're declining at the same time, there's all sorts of scenarios where you might actually not be losing on the option, even or though all is going up. Uh, or vol is going up, that suddenly uh, you're not actually in a bad situation, even though you were two months early mm -hmm. uh, to the trade. And so this is just a phenomenal time to, uh, to put on these trades because interest rates are up there. Three months from now, interest rates might already be down a bit. Not all the way down, but they might be down. Uh, volatility may be up three months from now. Right now, volatility is stupid cheap. And interest rates are stupid high. And we know that both volatility are likely to go up and interest rates are likely to go down, making this the most interesting moment to put on long dated put options. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, I want to be clear, too, because a lot of people look at even the TLT or the TUA, I think it was, as just kind of, I guess, an alpha play, if, if that's the right word, or just kind of a, a capital gains play, let's say. Yeah. Okay. Where in reality, it's, it, it, it may be a capital gains play, but it may just be a hedge. And uh, I, I think one of the main reasons why we see the 10-year going down is not so much because all these big institutions and sophisticated investors are trying to have uh, capital appreciation, but more so they're trying to hedge their portfolio with all these long positions that they can't liquidate. 
So I I, want to encourage people to not only look at it from the standpoint of, uh, you know, price appreciation on what you're buying, but also using that price appreciation to hedge what you can't sell. Yeah. I I can't think of a better way of put it. And that's awesome. Yeah. Patrick, when are you doing the webinar, buddy? Uh, the webinar is on Monday, December 11th, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You just have to go to bigpicturetrading.com. It's right on the front of the homepage. There's super easy. Just go to the bigpicturetrading.com and uh, you can register. And uh, you know what? Uh, listen, if you uh, ever need some insights on uh, how to construct these trades, George, you know you got me here, bud. Um, hopefully, uh, we'll see each other in Colombia. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure. What What level will it be appropriate for? Patrick, oh, it, it, we, it we are building this or is it not, absolutely or is it for beginners. Absolutely. Because what, because what we're trying to do is to help people protect themselves. This is not active trading. This is not buy low, sell high. You got to know, uh, you know, all of these uh, option Greeks and constructing fancy spreads and using this buy and sell signal, getting get out stuff. This is about how to kind of size up your portfolio, size up your thing and determine what is the uh, right amount of insurance that I need to protect the things I have in there and or how much do I want exposure to the downside and how much risk do I undertake for uh, for wanting that downside exposure if I was wanting to be short? And we're, we're keeping it super uh, intro level. We're trying to make sure that, uh, that uh, we help. We want to help a lot of people. Uh, and the thing is, is that if we make it sophisticated, you immediately block out a lot of the people that need the protection. Yeah, they're just going to so tune it out. They're going to tune it out. And so, so we're really trying to keep it clean, simple, straightforward uh, in terms of understanding. Obviously, we do a lot more sophisticated stuff, a big picture, but, uh, but this one, straightforward, beginner easy. Okay, quick question, because I know it's on everyone's mind right now, Patrick. You're into the charts and I know you use technical analysis a lot. What do the charts tell you right now about gold? Okay. So, uh, gold, um, what I was talking with my members about it. We had a target of 140 because of a technical measured move, something I know, uh, um, you know, Gene and, and, uh, and others that come on to, uh, my stuff, you see me use this technical analysis. Uh, this was a, a gold move on the upside. That was this really nice move. I still, uh, I'm of the opinion that the really big gold bull market actually starts once the easing cycle is underway. This burst higher was when everyone pulled forward the rate cut cycle. Everyone's like suddenly they were everyone was before they're not going to start cutting till the second half of the year. Now they pulled it all forward. Suddenly they're going to be cutting in three months. And so when that easing cycle was pulled forward. Every uh, obviously caused interest rates to dive, and gold got this huge rocket boost. From, but did from it the, go above any resist, like any key of course, resistance it levels? broke to uh, it broke to all time highs, right? Like uh, gold, uh, at least uh, on an intraday basis, broke to all time highs. Okay. It didn't sustain there on there, but uh, but on a monthly chart, when you're looking at closing charts on a uh, closing basis, uh, once we were above two thousand on a monthly close, it was already a technical breakout. Okay. But but my view remains that gold. Uh, I, I still think the risk is very real that the market is too ambitious about a rate cut cycle. And once the, a little bit of a, like a wet towel is thrown to cool everything off a little bit, gold will, will recede. My view, though, is it stays above 2000 
spends a couple months kind of consolidating, but there will be a 2024 big gold bull market. And I think it's going to correspond during the entire easing cycle. Uh, I, I think that uh, once interest rates are being cut, uh, and once liquidity is being provided, and uh, and once the dollar goes through a weakening cycle and it starts to depreciate, which is a typical thing that happens to the U.S. dollar, gold is just going to be an amazing asset. I, I just uh, not so sure that it's this was the moment here in December at the first week of December where you know if you're not on the bus, the bus has left the station and you're yeah. you're you're screwed. Right? I think there'll be another buy on dip on gold. Okay, that's why I wanted to know. All right, buddy. The website is bigpicturetrading.com. You guys can go there, check See out the all webinar. Monday. Yeah, Patrick, thanks for coming on, buddy. Always appreciate it. Listen, uh, looking forward to it. Maybe we'll do this live face-to-face -face, uh, when I'm uh, out in uh, Medine. That's right. We got to go to, we got to date at Pub Rock. That's but, right. Oh, man, that was awesome. <laughs> for those of you who know Medellin, I, I took Patrick to Pub Rock last time he was here and we had an absolute blast. So we'll have was, to have Pub, Pub Rock round number two. Love it. <laughs> Have a good one, All buddy. Right. All right. Take care. Cheers.